So, as we sit here this evening, I find myself wondering how you're doing. It's quite something, isn't it, to enter into a retreat like this, to engage in this form of practice. Sometimes it's a little bit surprising, isn't it, just how challenging it, challenging it can be and Sometimes I, have, I sort of imagine what it would be like if we were trying to explain to our friends who maybe had never done this before, maybe family or colleagues, you know. So, you know, wow, yeah, you know, it was really hard that first day. Boy, I say, so what happened? What do you have to do? I said, oh, well, we, you know, we had to sit around for 30, 40 minutes on a cushion or a chair. And we had to get up and walk back and forth and not go anywhere, really, not very fast. And then we had to sit down again. Then we stood around for a little while, sat down some more. Then we had lunch. I was tired. And then we did more of that in the afternoon, and by the evening I was exhausted. And we might find it a little difficult to convince our friend that it was actually quite challenging. And of course it may be for some of you that it hasn't been particularly challenging today. But it's interesting, I think, to notice what it's like for us when we come into a situation where we're invited to make contact with our experience. Invited to allow ourselves to be impacted, to be touched by, to feel what's actually happening right here where we are. Sometimes it can be that we kind of put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We come out of a world in a situation where for many of us we feel any kind, any number of different demands upon us, external or perhaps internal. We come into a situation where we're told, actually, you know, you don't have to perform. There's not something you really have to do here. Just pay attention, be attentive, take care and care for your experience. And it can be often that we're sort of busy evaluating, am I doing it right how I succeeded today, how far have I got? That kind of thinking that we're so used to. Actually, can I just check volume-wise, is this... Can you hear all right? Right. This, this sometimes is a value to some, or a use to some evaluation. Yeah, I can hear. That, that, that's useful. But that sense that we often bring to ourselves and to our experience of somehow needing to perform or somehow evaluating whether we're performing well enough. And the subtle pressure that that generates for many of us is, um, is often really painful. In terms of what's hard, sometimes it's to do with the way we have an expectation of where we should be by now and the subtle way we push ourselves to get there. Or the way that perhaps we imagine that everybody else seems to be doing all right. And it's just me that's finding it difficult. And, of course, we'd really like to know, you know, how are we doing? Are we doing well? And is it going okay? And it's kind of reassuring, perhaps, to hear from maybe someone in my, my role as a teacher or from someone else, maybe one of the questions that we heard expressed or queries raised. Oh yeah, other people might also have elements that are challenging with you know, the posture or the sitting or the, the forms that we're engaging in. 
And the interesting thing about what we're doing is that you can't really evaluate the benefit of this activity, or this way of engaging, you can't evaluate that by what happens when you're doing it. That seems a little surprising. We can only really evaluate what we're doing here, or in fact in any situation, by how it affects our life. Not whether it just feels good or looks good or appears to fit in with some idea we have about how we think it should or shouldn't be. So what's it been like for you to be close with yourself today? Or to endeavour or begin the journey of allowing yourself to be closer to what's happening, to what you're feeling, to what you're experiencing in this heart, this mind, this body, that all of us are here in this condition with a heart, with a mind, with a body. And the different processes we're engaged in here are really an invitation to turn towards, to connect, to become intimate with what's here. Not to produce something new or different, but to come close to it and start to explore what, 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 what's here. And we could also say, as well as exploring what's here, begin to explore what's possible in this situation. One of the things we might notice is there are there are patterns, there are habits, there are ways we kind of do things. And one classic way that we'll notice is that sense of trying to get ourselves to perform according to the idea of what we think should happen. We've been told we should be mindful, present, or we're invited. Actually, we haven't been told. Uh, I doubt either any of Gavin or Leela or myself would have used the word, you should now be very mindful. We probably wouldn't phrase it like that or... We might say, well, you could see what's possible or endeavour to be present, to be sensitive, to be awake. But so easily we translate it, we add in that sense of, well, I should, and if I didn't, then I've failed or I'm no good. And that sense of, oh, okay, that, that's a really common pattern. That's a very familiar thing we might recognise. And just seeing, oh, what's it like to just step back from that? To create a bit more space, to offer ourselves a space for some exploration, to see what might be possible. So many of the patterns that we've established and learned and ways of being or behaving have had a place and a value for us in our life. And many of them also come to the end of their value or we come to the limits of what is useful in them and yet find ourselves often simply reenacting them. Cycling round and round. And this is something that we we might notice here. The tendency to kind of be looking into the future for something that's going to be better than where we are. Did anyone have that experience here? Sitting in the meditation thinking, I can't wait till it's finished. You know, sometimes when the bell rings, I don't know if you've noticed this, the bell rings and there's this palpable, ah, 
It's like happy experience, happy moment. That's what we were waiting for. It's curious because the moment after the bell rang is really not very different from the moment before it. If, if you look, it's the same mind, heart, body. But something in us goes, ah. Maybe that's because there's some relief offered by the possibility of moving our body or something else. And yet, we might have been waiting for that bell, waiting for that moment, wondering, you know. You and I did say that they've learned how to sort of fall asleep sitting upright. Maybe they've fallen asleep, you know. Um, maybe we've been sitting here for hours. Sometimes it feels that way. And the urge to check one's watch. If you can avoid doing that, you know, it's really helpful to not look at your watch because what happens if you start looking at your watch is you feel like you've been there for hours and you look at it and it's been, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and it feels like hours more and you look at it again, you know, 16 minutes. That whole sense of how we relate to wanting something to come to an end is really interesting. But often it's based on this idea that the next thing is going to be a lot better. And... And we, so we finished the sitting. It's great. The sitting's finished. Then walking time. <laughs> okay. So that's fun. We get to go outside. It's fresh. It's sunny. It's nice. This looks quite pleasant. It could even be fun, maybe. But a little while in, it's like, how long does this go on for? <laughs> you know? We start looking forward to the next sitting. It's interesting. We look forward to the next... The one we were looking forward to getting out of, we're now looking forward to getting into. And it's because we keep tipping forward out of where we are in the sense that somehow out there in front of us we're going to get to something better. And it's not that there aren't wholesome and um, worthwhile things to engage with or to cultivate and develop, but that if we're operating out of this orientation, this attitude, this pattern of always looking elsewhere, rather than looking to where we are. No matter where we are, we find at some level it doesn't quite do it for us. There's a way in which in our culture we're encouraged to you know, get more, have more of the things you've already got, or do them sort of more intensively, more consistently, or, or that to, you know, to get more and to have more of what we already have, as if getting more and having more of it will somehow make a difference. And it doesn't necessarily meet us in the way we wish and need to be met. I, I had the um, good fortune to travel back to New Zealand, um, where I grew up earlier this year, to, and my father was turning 80, so, so that was one of the reasons I was going to be teaching on a retreat and seeing friends and things. And it was very interesting for me to be back in the town where I went to school and to even bump into a couple of friends from that time who I hadn't seen for 30 years, which is quite remarkable and lovely, in fact. But I was reflecting on um, you know, what we used to do together, which was you know, whenever we, um, well, quite frequently, at least uh, um, two or three times a week, we'd go down to the pub. You know, this is when we were probably way too young to be in the pub, but um, it was allowed, it seemed. Um, sort of 18 years old, I think, probably 17, 18. And, um, and there was this interesting thing that went on about how we told each other how much fun we had when we were there, drinking beer, generally. And we'd mostly talk about how good it was the last time and how good it was going to be the next time. And then we'd go to another pub, because we got bored with one another, and we'd sit there and we'd have a drink, and we'd talk about how good it was and how great it's going to be. And at some point I got the idea, I sort of suddenly realised, actually, I'm not enjoying this. 
And we kept saying, oh yeah, it's going to be really good in the next place. And it was really good in the last place. And the next time we do this will be good. And the last time we did it was good. But actually if I stopped and asked myself, no, actually when I'm doing it, it's not good. This isn't doing it for me. I'm not enjoying this. And because we keep kind of looking further away from within, looking, rather looking towards where we are, we tend to look away. We notice this movement in the mind. We don't quite see what's happening right here where we are. The Buddha once observed, he, he said, Fools seek to pursue experience. The wise endeavour to understand it. And it's a, it's a really interesting and uh, pithy sort of expression of something I think really important. And, you know, maybe fools seems a little bit of a harsh word. It's, obviously it's a translation. Um, I think it might be perhaps more usefully translated as those who are blinded by the, uh, the power of conditioning and the forces that we are surrounded by of reactivity. That sense of chasing after experience, of trying to get to a better version of my experience. Of course, it has a place in a certain way. But the, if, if there's a, a way in which we are not connected with where we are, then where we are will never fulfill us. And so far as we're always looking for something more, for something better, for something different, for something other than what's here, that very looking away means whatever that is nourishing or wholesome or beautiful or uplifting in my experience right here, I'm not going to be in contact with it. I'm not even going to know about it because I'm so compelled to look elsewhere. And so one of the things we encounter, we see here, is this way in which we are almost, well, compelled or driven, it seems irresistibly, unstoppably, to look towards what's coming next. Or to look towards what was before. And it's interesting, because what tends to go on in that is this process of looking to see in the past, if we can explain and understand how things happened in the past, if we can figure that out, then we'll know how to make all the good things happen in the future and avoid all the bad things happening in the future. As, as a simple description of 90, well, I don't want to put a number on it, a large proportion of our mental activity and, and where a lot of our life's energy goes, it can go into that if it's unattended to. So dwelling in, considering, contemplating how things work in order to in some way be able to determine or control how things might be. And of course there's something important in that. There's a kind of a learning that we need to, to do from our life. There's a growing, there's a, there's a, um, a development of, of wisdom based on that experience that can be really important and necessary and wholesome. And yet often we're not aware of the forces of reactivity, particularly the, the movement of craving the sense of demanding or needing something that isn't what I have. 
all the, the movement of aversion, the, the rejection, the resistance to, the pushing away of what's here, or what we anticipate might be coming. And this, in a, in a sense, a way to endeavour to control our experience, to make it as we wish it to be. This is what the Buddha spoke of when he said, fools seek to pursue experience. And the wise seek to understand it. What does that mean? Understanding what is possible in the realm of experience and what is not. This is the realm of wisdom, we could say. And this is the realm of a significant element of of the Buddha's teachings and of spiritual teaching in general. I mean, in some ways it seems like, of course, why, why wouldn't I seek to avoid things that are unpleasant and seek to pursue that which is pleasurable? There's a, a natural way that happens and in a kind of a... There's, there's a, a biological framework for that in which, of course, we, we move towards what is pleasant because of what is seeking what is nourishing in terms of food or in terms of warmth and both food and warmth can be pleasant and avoiding that which is perhaps dangerous or um, cold which is generally unpleasant at least if it's too much and, um, and, and that which might harm us or hurt us But it's not the case, as we often assume, that that which is pleasurable and which instinctively attracts us is always what is wholesome for us, or nourishing or serving our deeper well-being. And likely that which is uncomfortable or unpleasant for us is not always that which is harmful to us or threatening our well-being. And this is, this is again, this isn't news. We, we know this, you know, that classic sort of thing about medicine. Sometimes it doesn't taste good, but it's good for us. It's interesting how that works, isn't it? You know, and it takes a certain kind of growing up to take our medicine, to say, oh, okay, I'm going to let myself have this bitter, or consume this sort of bitter herb that might actually support my well-being. So part of what's happening here is an invitation just to pause with our experience. We're being invited again and again to turn towards it, to come back into contact, to feel, to sense, to be present, to be awake in the midst of what's happening. Using this framework of physicality, this field of somatic experience that we call the body, as a reference point, as a grounding place. So we just keep coming, whether we're sitting, whether we're standing, whether we're walking... And in fact, in any activity we're engaged in, we can come into contact with this. And this is a way that we can support ourselves to be present, to know what's actually happening right now, in that aspect at least. And then as we do that, we start to notice. We start to notice where we're pulled. We start to notice where we're pushed. We start to feel that sense of, I really want, or I don't want. You know, we, we encounter places at times in our body where it's uncomfortable. And we, we, we're invited to explore. So what's that like? To not just move away or avoid the uncomfortable experience straight away. 
it would seem like, well, why shouldn't I just change my posture every time it's a little uncomfortable? Why shouldn't I just scratch my nose every time it itches? Why shouldn't I come in here with a sort of a, a sort of a, a range of equipment for making sure I stay comfortable? Now it's okay, and it's important actually to do what we can to be relatively at ease in our body. I'm not knocking that, of course, and we, we spoke. Uh, many of you here about you know finding ways to be more at ease in the sitting posture of course that's important but what we notice is if we always move away from what's uncomfortable there's always something that's uncomfortable we never get to the place where there isn't something uncomfortable that's part of what's happening when we find ourselves wanting the end of the sitting so I can do the walking because there's something about the sitting that's uncomfortable that's why we want to come to an end of it just physically, it might just be the fact that I don't have anything to do that tells me who I am here, apart from the fact that I'm appearing not to do meditation, so maybe that's who I am. I'm not a very good meditator, which isn't true, actually. That's not going to be the case, even if one finds it hard to do this. And likewise, in the walking, there might be something challenging about it. It might not be so physically challenging, but the, the sheer utter pointlessness of it becomes challenging for us. It's really hard, isn't it, to do something that, at least when we're meditating, we could have the fantasy that maybe we're going to get somewhere and have some sort of kind of spiritual experience or look like what a spiritual person's supposed to look like. But walking slowly back and forth, there's nothing on offer there. And that, for most of us, is really hard. Because we're not quite sure who we are if we're not somehow presenting some kind of performance for our evaluation for someone else's. So, so part of what's here is again this invitation to begin to become curious, to be interested in what's happening, to be kind with yourself in the midst of these places that aren't easy, that are tricky, that are challenging for us. And the forces that, that push and pull us Starting to, to notice what it is when it feels that like we're being pulled towards something. In the idea and the fantasy that this is somehow going to do it for me. If I can just get to the end of the sitting, then it's going to be okay. Maybe. Maybe not. There's a, a process there that what we, what, the way we speak about this, or the way the Buddha spoke about it, is in terms of understanding this kind of thirst or this craving that we can be driven by. And yet, this looks quite similar to, and yet is different than the the natural movement to connect, to be in touch with that which is wholesome and nourishing. And that's something that we're actually seeking to support here. The very quality of presence itself is something wholesome, something nourishing. We're seeking to connect with that. We're seeking to establish and deepen that. And likewise, beginning to discern the difference between that way in which we sometimes just push experience away because we don't like it, because it's unpleasant, or because it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, either physically or sort of in terms of um, more sort of psychically, emotionally, like it's not okay to be someone walking back and forth looking like someone in a, you know, did anyone have the thought of what particular kind of institution this might look like? <laughs> of course, it looks like a meditation centre, that kind of institution. But we sometimes think of other ones. Um, and it's like we're not comfortable with that. 
And that sense of aversion, of not liking, needs to be distinguished from the capacity. We also have a need to both separate from, or to protect ourselves with regard to the unhealthy, to separate from what is limiting and to protect ourselves from what is also harmful. What happens when we're not aware of that discernment is that the way these patterns tend to play out is in a, a way of contraction. So part of what we'll notice when we come to a retreat like this is the amount of tension in our body and our mind. Part of why it's uncomfortable and not easy to do this, which just involves sitting around doing not very much, as we've said, or wandering back and forth, is because we start to encounter those patterns of tension, of tightness. And initially, we think the way to resolve them is by doing more of the exact kind of activity that created them. Perhaps you can see the problem there. It's like doing more of all of what we've been doing already doesn't bring it to an end. If it was going to, it would have done so by now. We need to find some other way to engage with our life. And so this is interesting because this is something we can actually notice when we're, when we're being drawn towards something that's wholesome, that's nourishing, that's actually truly beneficial. That movement has a soft and an expansive quality to it. When we're grasping towards it, we're trying to take hold of it, when there's a sense of a craving for or a demanding of a certain experience, that I must have this, there's a tightening, there's a contraction that goes on there. And we can become aware of and sensitive to this in our body. And likewise, when we're, when we're needing to separate from something that's limiting or to protect ourselves from something that might be harmful, there can be a very firm and strong quality to that. But it's not actually contracted. It's not actually contracted. And when we react with aversion or with resistance, with a sense of, no, I will not allow this, not in a way that's actually going to be protective and wholesome for us, but a way that actually involves a tightening and a contracting of the heart and the mind and the body, we can feel that. So part of what we have the opportunity to do as we practice is start to notice those patterns of contraction and also the places and ways in which we can start to find a softening and an opening that's possible for us. That we start to explore what it means to be in relationship to our experience, which is really a foundation for being in relationship to the world in a way that actually truly conduces to well-being, to happiness, to a sense of openness and a sense of freedom in the midst of experience. This, the process of acting out patterns of craving and aversion leads to this kind of tightening that we call attachment where we're kind of in a position where it feels like I must have or avoid this, whatever it might be. And it's characterized by a loss of our natural openness, a loss of our natural fluidity. It's interesting that the, the word the Buddha used for this is uh, upadana, 
And some of you, probably many of you will be familiar with that, that the word dana, which in the, in the teaching of the Buddha and this tradition is a word that reflect, or represents and expresses a spirit of generosity and of sharing, of giving and offering. And upadana is a word, what it actually translates at, or the way it unpacks, it's um, dana is the root, so generosity or givingness. And adana, so a is a negative or a negator, so it's like non-generosity, non-givingness. And up is an intensifier, so it's lots of very not-givingness, or very strong not-givingness. And I think it's a really interesting kind of word in that regard, because what it's saying is, oh, actually, attachment has the sense of closing to the capacity we have to give to life. It's kind of like we were in a place where we're making a demand from it, rather than the opposite. And interestingly here, and this is something we find, in fact, in many spiritual traditions, certainly not just in the teachings of the Buddha, the deepest happiness, fulfillment and satisfaction that we find and that we experience the real quality of our life it's not based on what we've got from our life it's much more based on what we've given to it and it's remarkable how many people have spoken at times of you know critical junctures of their life or at the in, in reflecting on their life at, at the end phase of that journey on on what it is that's been most important. And whenever I've, I've read of such sort of observations, reflections, it's reliably or if, if not universally, the sense of what they've given, what's been offered, how much love has been extended in their life is what really leaves a sense of deep fulfillment and happiness. And so one of the ways we could understand what we're doing is we're actually learning to reorient to this experience of being alive with that sense of offering something to it. Understanding that, of course, we have these very strong and deeply biologically trained and established drivers that, that are more about trying to get from it. And it's not to judge them, but to understand that these are not... that, that this, this, this process of kind of pursuing and avoiding is something in the service of survival. It's not in the service of happiness. And we need to take care of the things that are involved in our survival, so it's not to judge it, of course, but to understand where the deeper happiness may be found. So it's important just in using the word attachment that we can distinguish the way the Buddha used that word upadana, which we translate as attachment, to distinguish that from the, the psychological term and modern Western understanding, which recognizes the crucial importance of the deep connection that hopefully is formed between an infant human being and the primary caring person that they are with in their very earliest time. And that, that sense of 
um, attachment is something wholesome and healthy in that context. Um, but it's a different word. Um, it's the same word, but it's being used in a very different way. And it's, I think it's important to understand that connection is something really essential for us all, both in that early psychological developmental process, but actually equally in terms of what allows deep well-being in our life. Because when we hear teachings about this kind of territory that suggests, and um, certainly this is something one hears in the context of Buddhist teaching, you know, that attachment is the cause or, or is that sort of is very much bound up in the experience of suffering, of dissatisfaction, of contraction, of, of pain. And it's true. This is something we can notice. If we see what happens, it's like we take hold of something and we squeeze and we tighten. Maybe around an idea, maybe around an experience. Often the response to that is to feel like somehow I should push away. I should not have anything to do with, I should not be in contact with the experiences that that arises in relationship to. And so, you know, a, a way that might show itself is we're invited here to to begin to disentangle from the thinking activity of the mind by simply noticing when it's going on and bringing our attention back into the body, feeling the breath, feeling our feet, just noticing what's happening. Because we get entangled in and we, we tend to get lost. We tend to not just become disconnected, but we also tend to contract in that activity of thinking that's compelling and compulsive so often. So it's really important to develop this capacity to, to just notice how that happens and simply move our attention out of that field and come back in to a different and perhaps more supportive realm of our experience. And in this regard, we're very much using the body and the breathing and the feet and the walking and the standing. But it's easy to imagine that in that process somehow that we're therefore saying one shouldn't be thinking or we're somehow thinking I've got to avoid that or stop that happening. And so we move from kind of pursuing it to somehow rejecting it. And really the practice invites us to find a balance in the middle between these two positions where we can see that this is what's happening and then see what is it useful to connect with here? What happens when I connect with my body or with this breath, this breathing experience? Oh, what are that? It actually starts to provide something of a support. It takes time for that. It can initially seem quite elusive and hard to track and hard to connect with. But over time, it starts to form a support. Whereas, oh, there's something wholesome in this. Just allowing the attention to rest in a breath, or maybe several breaths. And sometimes in that, we start to sense, oh, oh yeah. It's actually, it's not about becoming disconnected from experience as a way to be free from it. It's about being close to it and yet not bound to it. We can't, useful, it's not useful to somehow stand apart from our experience. That's actually not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to keep it at a distance and look at it from over here so we don't get entangled with it. 
The invitation is to be really up close to what's happening. And in, in including what's here. It's a little bit like one, one way I find it useful to maybe try and illustrate it. We, we find ourselves kind of getting entangled with things. And you may have noticed on numerous occasions during the day, you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I'm in the middle of something. And I'm kind of lost in there. And it's like we're entangled. And so then I think, okay, that's, that's not okay. I need to kind of sort of get away from it. And I don't want to get over here and look at it from a safe distance. I don't know if you can see my hands at the back, but it's sort of like we tend to do that and we think, oh, this is, this, is, this is detachment. This is what it's all about. And yet that's, I think, not so useful, a way of orienting. And the way I find it sometimes helpful to illustrate this is, is this what this looks like? Because this can be completely unattached. And unattachment or non-attachment is actually what counterbalance the tendency to become entangled. Because two things can be this close, but also free to move, free to shift, free to move away if needed, but not required to. And that sense of being close to our experience, but not taking hold of it. That's what we're inviting here. That's what we're asking ourselves, to explore what's possible for us in this regard. So the attitude we bring to this is really important. How we hold this process. And to understand it as a training, to understand this is something that we're, for some of us, just really in the beginning stages of, and for others, well established, and yet still in that process of deepening and developing what's possible in this training of the heart and mind to, to be more intimately present and connected with our experience. <coughs> I have a, a friend who uh, I used to oh, like to go walking with on Dartmoor and uh, a couple of years ago he, he got a puppy. It was very interesting and touching for me to see how he was engaging in the journey with the puppy of training the puppy. And it seemed uh, very much like something I often found myself talking about in regard to meditation, but it was interesting, it was really clear. This is, um, it was um, how often the puppy would just run away and want to go do something, that maybe chase something or disappear somewhere. And, and my friend Bill would always be just calling back, with a whistle or with his name, calling him back. And whenever he came back, whenever this puppy came back, he would say, well done, good dog, and give him a little treat. And this was the way to train him. He never said, bad dog, don't do that, when it ran away. He always said, when it came back, he just said, come back, come back, come back. <laughs> um, 
Um, and when it came back, it was like, oh, well done. That's so different than how we often relate to ourselves, isn't it? Where we notice our mind has run off and we go, oh, bad dog. Bad mind, bad me. Even if we don't use that language. It's like we're not trying to tie the mind up here. We actually need to learn what it is to give it space, but to actually bring it back and to honour the moments when we reconnect, the moments when we come back. This is actually really powerful, even if they don't seem to be too many initially or too clear in the beginning. When, when there's that sense of even just noticing that the attention has gone elsewhere, in that moment, we're already reconnected. We're not necessarily lost in that moment at all. And then turning back to the body, coming back into the breathing experience, or coming back into the sense of the posture, or the feet on the ground, and the walking, standing, taking a step. And to understand that no matter what's happening here, this can be of value. No matter what experience is coming to you, or how you're finding yourself responding to it, this can be of value. One of the things that we get to learn, of course, is that some things aren't that helpful. Some of the responses that we find ourselves enacting, getting frustrated or irritated with ourselves, with our body, with other people, whatever it might be, we'll find that actually doesn't seem to really help in the end. But the interesting thing is that if we take this as a process of learning, even the things that aren't helpful, we can learn something from. And that's actually something useful. So there's something of value if we're willing to relate to this process as a learning and a journey of understanding. So again, when the Buddha said, the wise seek to understand experience, that doesn't mean you have to already have understood it to be wise. But seeking to understand, looking to see, oh, what's actually happening here? There is wisdom in that very orientation itself. And there's different elements to what can grow and develop here that's wholesome and beneficial. And one element is the, the quality of gatheredness, of collectedness. And we sometimes hear and even use the word concentration, which I think is often not so helpful because we have this idea of concentration that something forced and we've been told at school, you know, hey you, concentrate. Or we've had a you know, rap over the knuckles for being distracted. And it feels like it's something willpower or effort driven. And often the sort of the sense of concentration I have, it's a bit like what's happened to, you know, tomatoes to turn into tomato concentrate. It's like all the moisture's been sucked out. It's sort of, <clears throat> sort of a stodgy sort of motionless thing. Unification has a very different quality. It's the sense of gathering together, of bringing together, of collecting. And the sense of just coming back into contact with our experience again and again. There's a gathering, there's a collecting that happens. And in doing so, it's almost like gathering water in our open hands, collecting it. It slowly begins to form a body of some substantiality. And this process of just coming back and coming back, there might be moments when we notice and we feel a certain sweetness or an openness. Just 
just a qualitative shift in the experience when we're really there. And equally, when that's not what's happening, we have the opportunity to notice and to be curious, to say, oh, I can learn something from what's happening in my mind when it doesn't feel very gathered, when it feels more reactive, when it feels more caught up. If I actually can bring a sense of caring to that situation, a sense of kindness for whatever might be difficult for us in that, to be understanding, oh, this is, some of this isn't easy for me. I can assure you that whatever you find that isn't easy in your experience, you will not be the only one who finds that challenging, or is that encountering it in a way that is, is challenging here. And that those places that are difficult, or those times when it's not easy to be present, this has its own value, because it's part of the process of how we actually soften. So much of what we come into a situation like this with is the residual, habitual patterns of contraction, tightness, hardness that lead to a, a numbing, a disconnection, and a, a sort of a, almost like a dismemberment of our life in which we're cut off from so much of our experience, so many parts of ourselves, so many aspects of what is possible for us as human beings. We're somehow cut off from them. And the, the practice of, of, of mindfulness, of presence, of cultivating sensitivity and connection in this way, the, the word that the Buddha used for this, sati, is also understood as not just translating as mindfulness and as sensitivity and presence, but also as remembering. And I think that's a really interesting word here. Remembering. It's, it's sort of, you can understand why one obvious aspect of it is, of course, we have to remember. We keep forgetting to be present. We think, well, that sounds like a good idea. I'll be present. Yeah, makes sense to me. But then somehow, remarkably, and with some incredible enthusiasm at times, our mind goes into some other place. We get lost, it seems. And then we remember, oh, that's right. I was actually here meditating. I was actually endeavoring to be present to abide in a sense of immediacy. And we come back into that. Remembering is absolutely part of this process. But remembering also has another sense and meaning to it that could be understood most clearly in sort of being juxtaposed or seen in relationship to the word dismember. You know, dismember, that's not such a nice word. It's where, you know, like one's limbs get removed from one's body. We get dismembered which is different than forgotten, but actually there's a way in which when we lose contact with, when we shut down, when we tighten and contract, we lose a lot of what we could call the, the wholesomeness and the potential of our life. And the process of coming into contact with is the process of remembering, of remembering our life, remembering our aliveness, and begin to see what's possible for us in this. So the invitation is really to include all of what is here. To begin to explore amongst what is arising, where and how it's useful to be attentive to that. And to see that the, the body can be a real refuge for us. And at the same time, that means we need to be willing to feel the sometimes uncomfortableness 
that we experience in the body. But this is also something that's very much a gateway to a deeper ease and well-being when we can accommodate the range of our experience more fully. This process of settling, of deepening, of opening is very much also the process of awakening, of coming to, beginning to see to know, to experience a sense of what is possible for this human heart and mind. For each of us, for all of us, the deeper dimensions of well-being and possibility flow from this willingness to connect with, to open to, to turn towards and include our life just as it is right here and right now. And really this is what we're practicing. This is what we're engaged in. So I'll just finish with a poem by David White. Entitled Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. Opening to the life we have refused again and again. Until now. Until now. So let's just sit together quietly for a few moments. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to rest more deeply in the simplicity of our experience just here as it is, just as we are. May we begin to remember this human heart, 
this human life, just as it is. For our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.